<clears throat> prayers are usually good uh, because they are not supposed to be a begging for something. We're, we're not beggars. Uh, we're people with honor that love to honor, particularly the invisible, to honor all that is, and in doing that, to learn to honor ourselves too. And I know that uh, at least my own Christian upbringing has tended to uh, bring me to my knees for prayer whenever the world seemed to be collapsing around. And in that moment, there's not a whole lot of dignity left uh, you know, to keep my head straight up between my shoulders. And so I end up bent in the begging posture. And what I've learned with my elders is that this kind of posture is not very charming in the eyes of our ancestors uh, because they want us to walk elegantly in the battlefield of life knowing that we have a purpose and that uh, we are not alone. Even when we look around, there seems to be nobody. And so I'm hoping that uh, the time and the opportunity we have together can be invested in the business of revisiting uh, prayers for ourselves, prayers for loved ones, and prayers for the world. We do ourselves a greater service when our energy and our genius is invested in making something around us better. And so the idea of self-care taking in this context is uh, more about reaffirming our interconnectedness. See, here I am from the world on the other side of the, the great waters, and I still feel like I'm looking at brothers and sisters everywhere I go. And so it seems to me that uh, the whole notion of uh, of stranger in a strange world is all relative because the world is all our home and wherever we go, whoever we meet could be a relative. So today I'm not sure about uh, what I need to share with you. I just uh, feel strongly that uh, this is a unique opportunity for us to revisit perhaps the uh, the subject of ritual the subject of the production of sacredness in the hope that maybe this can become increasingly the kind of mantle that we surround our daily life with, allowing us to be not just protected from adversities, but maybe putting adversity in defiance. Because more often than not, the issue is not to duck, to run away, to shield away. It is to stand so, so tall that somehow adversity gets scared. <laughs> there is a kind of uh, predictability that the uh, conventional world has successfully uh, educated us into. And so we become not the hunter, but the hunted. And this is not the dignifying thing about life. In the past two years, I found myself uh, uh, really humbled by the... Uh, the attack on my own grandiosity, uh, and it came in the form of loss. Uh, last year, lost both of my parents, uh, six months apart. And for the first time, life had a different color. I heard last night someone mentioning the fact that uh, the parting of parents and he being the oldest uh, was left at the head of the line, the front of the line. And that's exactly what was delivered to me being the oldest in a family that has tried very hard to uh, 
uphold the values of uh, uh, the ancestors in the midst of very, very deep change. Uh, it has had its blessing as well as its curses. Because in Africa right now, one of the biggest problems is that uh, the clash between the indigenous and the so-called moderns is producing tremendous amount of confusion. And um, it is also raising the issue of where is the place of the ancient values in modern day? What space do they occupy? And the more depressing question is raised by the fact that modernity seems to negate anything that does not align in its uh, crazy pursuit of progress. Something seems to be constantly at risk of becoming dead, of becoming a casualty. And what I've learned uh, being in the modern world and working with people like you is the witnessing of the ancients and the indigenous wanting to be reborn here wanting to be reborn in people who have been, I would say, de-indigenized. And that is quite impressive, because while third world in general is looking at modernity as the heaven of humanity, uh, it is quite sobering to find out that uh, modernity has begun to look at the indigenous world as a possible place of some kind of redemption. And this is the kind of thing that drives me to places like this. It seems that in order, therefore, to allow that indigenous energy to come forward, to be born, there is a lot of cleansing to be done. It is perhaps not surprising to see that uh, the modern world this year has been experiencing drought. The dryness of the realm might be a reflection of the increasing drought in the psyche of the culture. And there won't be some kind of Moses or some kind of Messiah showing up from God knows where to sprinkle the water of cleansing. It will have to arise from the ground. It will have to come from the very people who have heard the call from the other world and who want to do something about it. And so my sense is that we are it. And the question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do in order to, uh, to cleanse all these layers and layers, these scales of negative energy that has pushed the bright self, the grandiose self, so deep inside that it can only burst out when the hammer of modernity is not about to fall or when modernity is not looking. This is why in coming up here, I thought that uh, doing something with water, a ritual involving water, might be uh, a, a relevant thing with the possibility of helping us uh, address uh, this issue. I feel strongly that uh, this has to be part of our individual purposes, uh, what we came into this world to do. And listening yesterday about uh, the... Uh, the moment of grandiosity that uh, has visited each and every one, I couldn't help but think that uh, every time we walk along the line of that which we came into this world to do, we are indeed walking in our greatness. And it is that greatness that I tend to associate with grandiosity. Of course, 
in a world that is seeming uh, to be so confused, this walk along the line of uh, purpose has the side effect of awakening all kinds of adversities. And this is why I like to say, and I enjoy the idea, that uh, you know that you must be doing something right when all hell break loose around you. Uh, because the journey to fulfillment of one's purpose is, uh, is not paved. That road is not paved. And every time there is a renewal of the commitment to embrace that purpose, the earth begins to shake and the world around start to object. And somehow you become the other who is doing the wrong thing, who is contributing to turbulence and confusion. The thing that I love really about uh, my culture is rooted in this, the fact that uh, purpose and life are very intimately connected. I'm always reminded of the beauty of all these ceremonies involving just a fetus who is looked at as an entity who has successfully managed to engage in the journey to partake in something in this world to the point that the birthing ceremony becomes the, uh, the, uh, the, the supreme welcoming gesture given to a newborn. And that has always kept me thinking, is the absence of a proper welcome conducive to a life that is disoriented or maybe predictable or something like that? I think of how many in this room were welcome enthusiastically when they were being born and what is the effect of that in the quality of their lives. And so the, uh, the response to that calls for the need to reinvent uh, rituals that welcome us regularly. Something along the line of uh, recreating over and over an act of welcoming that is genuine enough to make someone feel like he is being reborn. And places such as this are really helpful uh, to at least uh, try to engage our imagination in those areas. And that's why the ritual that uh, I would like to uh, propose for this gathering, I would like him to, uh, to have a welcoming component, one that make people feel that they're being seen once again. And so uh, I associated it with water because of its, uh, uh, of its spiritual meaning, one that uh, can cleanse, can purify, and at least wash away whatever is hanging on to us that we don't need. And since we have a significant body of water here, that might be the right thing to do. And who knows if we get some water directly from the heavens, since the sky is now uh, dressed up for something like that, uh, it may be a bonus. Meanwhile, I also can't help but think of the life force behind all these trees that are surrounding us and wondering what we can do to respond to whatever call they keep directing at us. This kind of spiritual awareness, is, it is really not a denial of reality. It is an effort to broaden our horizons of consciousness, to broaden it in such a way that uh, it makes us a whole lot bigger than we are, that the space that we occupy can melt to, to, to 
to occupy a greater realm than the one that we are immediately conscious of. Earlier on this year, I was in Africa and uh, and um, I was involved in a, uh, this intense ritual of uh, uh, at least giving an ancestral uh, an ancestral place uh, to my father who died a year ago. And um, one of the things that I was thinking about was uh, the idea that uh, I have seen in the in the West that the dead are not given sufficient attention and therefore are still among these trees, uh, on the streets, uh, sometime in the offices. Uh, and we make a huge effort to try to live our life as if they're not there. And yet everywhere I've asked the question, who has not dreamt of a loved one who is dead? Everyone have checked in as having had an experience like that. And it seems to me that this, this means that uh, this is not an issue that only addresses itself to places that are still so-called indigenous. This, the same reality that is there that makes the dead more alive than ever and wanting to be involved in our lives because they know better. They know that there are things that we can't see but that are very important for the quality of our life. And they would like to show us how to go, how to address these things. Uh, this is not just confined to there. It is actually confined to the world. And I feel that uh, we come here mostly because these dead have asked us to come over, not because a flyer came to you. Uh, and so the question, therefore, still remains: What do we do in order to honor that, to acknowledge that? so that we, in turn, can feel a whole lot more connection than uh, usual. If we can call the ancestors into our midst, then it gives us the chance, at least, uh, to uh, explore the possibility of that gift inside of us that we can give as a way of exploring the dimension of our own greatness. At the core of the indigenous uh, philosophy or spirituality is really the idea of uh, the healing power of giving. And uh, this is probably why among the Dagora people, uh, these, uh, uh, this giving is inspired by the notion of a gift, which in turn is connected to purpose that then uh, provide a, uh, a certain direction to life which is essentially inspired by delivering that gift. Uh, to put it differently, uh, the thing that I like the most is to know that uh, the purpose uh, that is part of the indigenous thinking is that we arrived here with a lot of suitcases, and in those suitcases are all kind of goodies. The problem about it is that uh, all these goodies are not for us individually. They are for the people around us. And it is our task to do everything we can in order to empty these suitcases and to distribute whatever is in there randomly. There is something in there that uh, we need to be very attentive to because giving empowers both the giver and the receiver. And there is a ritual act that takes place at that moment 
what jacks up the spirits of the two parties in a manner that translates into a very profound healing. And so the question I have to you is, what is the gift we know that we carry inside of us? And how do we go about making it available to others? They say also that uh, the origin of illness comes from the inability to deliver our gift. And this is really food for thought. How come my not being able to give my gift make me sick? And I've given a lot of thought to it. And what I've come up with was that, uh, indeed, uh, imagine yourself as a UPS delivery person uh, who drive a truck full of gifts. And each one has an address. Uh, each package has an address. And you show up, knock at the door, and say, this is for you. And you say, no, uh, I don't think so. Then where are you going to go? Where else? And so at the end of the day, you return home with the truck still full. Sooner or later, these gifts take on a life of their own, and they begin crying and yelling inside of you. And the psychical feeling, the impression you have of yourself is that you've landed at the wrong place. You have the right addresses, but nobody recognizes them. I think that uh, this is, a, this is a, a very poignant um, a problem that requires that somehow we be able to play both the role of givers and receivers. The receiver is as much responsible for summoning the gift out of the other as the giver is in convincing the receiver that this gift is his. And so therefore, that throws us into the department of advertising. Uh, How do we drum up enough attention to our gifts so that there is a crowd of receivers showing up to the point where it produces a reverse problem, uh, making you wonder whether you have enough gift to give to all these people? Uh, and I think that uh, places like this should, be, should give us the opportunity to, uh, to explore that. Uh, the weight of most of the gifts that we're talking about are not to be measured with standard scales, because that's not what they respond to. Instead, what they respond to is something so purely connected with the heart that indeed you know when you have received the gift, and you know when you have given a gift. And the best place for that to occur is really in what we call the sacred, sacred place which means that that kind of uh, space that we create, uh, delineating it from the ordinary and investing it with our intention that it be the home of the invisible and that as the invisible consciousness comes, that, it make the, uh, that invisible presence make every gesture we make sacred. That's when ritual begins to happen. And so we need to understand that the distinction between, therefore, uh, the uh, profane and the sacred is basically delineated by intention. Uh, what we want an ordinary-looking thing to be depends on the intention we inject into it. Otherwise, a stone is going to just be a stone. But with a spiritual infusion, a stone can become a mountain. And that mountain, in turn, can be the mirror of the greatness that we carry inside of us. Uh, Dagara shamans were always 
not hesitate to point to the fact that you are connected to a, a mountain and they will point to a small stone, uh, creating this kind of confusion. Uh, if, that's, if this is how tall the mountain is, uh, it makes you feel like they're pointing at your smallness. But in fact, this is because in a sacred space, the smallest thing can be equivalent to the greatest thing there ever is. And this is why, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the, the idea of symbolism uh, uh, is so important in uh, uh, the practice of spirituality. If a little stone represents a mountain or is a mountain, because in Dagra we don't have a word for the word represent, uh, because the, the, the question is, if something represents, that means that what that thing is representing is not there. Representation calls attention to the absence of the original. And so, therefore, it raises the question as to whether that which represents the absence of something can actually live up to the standard of the other that is not there. And so it is useful in that context to name things for what they are as opposed to what they're supposed to represent. This way, I will give you a stone and say, take this mountain. It represents your own tallness, your own greatness, because mountains are visible from far away. Let you be visible from very far away. And this is something which, when taken directly into the psyche, can resonate very loudly. And I think that uh, even in the midst of uh, all kinds of adversity, the capacity to reaffirm uh, your greatness by way of carrying an object that is that greatness means that you are conscious of your own healing as opposed to your need to go somewhere in order to get some healing. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. What the hell? Uh, and so I want, I, I want to throw all these ideas in so that they become food for thought, uh, something that we can then take into uh, sacred space later uh, where we don't have to explain things in great detail, but where the space can be pointed at and power be given to you to transform it from its ordinary look to its extraordinary uh, capacity so that in it we can interact with one another in a way that uh, uh, that is constructive that is healing and so uh, with that in mind you know i want to i want to stress the fact that uh, the ritual we're going to be doing later on this uh, this week uh, uh, needs to uh, to be part of an ongoing personal preparation and and in that preparation, there will be certain things that you need to, uh, to constantly keep in mind. What is it that I carry in me that is not mine, uh, that I need to allow the spirit of the water to wash away? What is this that uh, has stuck itself on me, forcing me to be its transport wherever and however that I need to get rid of? so that I can lose sufficient weight to find my steps in this world lighter. It is important to be able to, uh, to uh, uh, 
dwell in this kind of issues uh, so that by the time we get together, we know that we have a mountain of uh, unwanted energies uh, <laughs> that we want to uh, wash away. And there is enough water for that. Uh, and in doing that, in doing that, keep in mind that uh, even if it is not for us, someone else will see it later on in a few weeks and will say to you that somehow you have changed. Because change is what we're looking for, indeed. You see, according to the Dagara people, this year is considered a nature year. What does that mean? It's a year of change and transformation. Now, it's important that uh, it, it be not any change, because any change is not interesting enough. It is important that uh, the change that we want to see happen be the kind of change that we have intentionally crafted. And that's why they say that when you, not, when you don't steer your own change, change will happen upon you. And more often than not, even when we have delineated the nature of the change that we want to see happen, some other change happen as a direct response to the clarity of our mind. And this is because the other world knows better what change is suitable to us. But once our participation in it to come in the form of us being able to draft something so that it can supply something else. Uh, this is something that calls itself really to the, uh, to the area of, the, uh, of uh, uh, the mechanism of ritual, which is like a journey into itself. And as we begin the journey in the form of planning, we are the author of our own making, of what we're making until we start the ritual itself, at which point uh, new chauffeurs show up to give us the ride. Uh, so that means that uh, uh, we are better off to let everything go, to let the reins off once we enter into sacred space. And uh, before that, we're supposed to take advantage of the fact that we are in charge because our being in charge stopped at the gate of ritual. It doesn't mean that we have been fired. Uh, it's, it simply means that uh, we have reached a, a, a different level of expertise and that those we have invoked to come and be with us in this journey are now, I, I mean, the, the, the job is now being transferred to them and they will do it according to their own style. I'm saying that because more often than not, you know, the event that we attract into our life is sometimes uh, uh, so much in contrast with what we thought was going to happen. And more often than not, the resulting attitude is that somehow uh, we tend to blame ourselves or to reformulate the whole thing in terms of something like, uh, maybe we're not quite meant for this. Maybe it was not the right time uh, because I didn't get what I expected. Uh, not getting what you expected is perhaps the greatest thing that could have happened to you. Uh, because how do you know that what you expect is exactly uh, what is good for you? you know? And so with regard to the, to, the, to the water ritual we're going to do later on, uh, all I want to prep your mind for, your consciousness for, is that uh, uh, we need to be thinking about shedding, uh, about relinquishing. Uh, 
and we need to look at water not as the H2O that uh, science has convinced us about, uh, but as a living entity that has our best interest at hand. And that if we approach that liquidity with a mind that wants, that it becomes almost like a, a, a mother that uh, wraps us up with its own freshness, then when it releases us, we will feel a whole lot lighter. Long, long time ago when I uh, did my last water ritual in my village, uh, well, I didn't like the fact that you would go under the water and stay so long uh, because you can't breathe and you have to wait. Uh, and, uh, you know, elders are sometimes, uh, uh, you know, borderline cruel about that. You know, uh, uh, but since there are elders, what can you say? Uh, you know, they'll keep you under the water as if they're waiting for a little bulb to come up, you know. <laughs> Uh, as a signal that you're ready to uh, to be let go of. Uh, and so uh, young people always try to find the deepest water because uh, the buoyancy of the water makes the uh, the elders not have enough stronghold. Uh, <laughs> well, there's always this need to, uh, to make do, uh, to readjust to situation. Because if you have your feet firmly on the, on, on the floor of the water, uh, that means you will have a stronger hold on the person who is down there. Uh, anyway, um, the, the, the thing that really uh, uh, touched me was it was not so much being in there as returning from there. Because somehow the, idea, the, the whole notion of welcoming, uh, which, uh, which means a lot of people shouting at me, uh, made a whole lot of sense. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of grandiosity opportunities in there, uh, because all of a sudden, uh, hundreds of people are, are waving at you as if somehow you just arrived in the village. And he's saying that I'm thinking about what would happen if you know you come from the water and all the men are doing that to you. At least for me, that was the best part uh, of the ritual. Uh, which deleted the almost uh, drowning experience uh, that uh, uh, that went on down there. And beside the fact that it's dark over there and uh, people are singing over there, that they won't know if disaster occurs. Uh, uh, so you return as someone who has really survived. And in fact, in in, put, in taking the thought a little further, I realized, you know, the thing that stick themselves to us take such a, such a deep grasp that it will require something borderline, uh, bordering death to release them. We always talk about safety uh, when uh, talking about radical ritual. And I don't think that uh, uh, this is an issue that really applies in this context. Uh, of course, uh, you can negotiate or renegotiate uh, the methods of your own transformation. But if it is done as a way of alleviating or at least distancing yourself from the impending trauma uh, or something of that nature, then what you are not saying but doing is trying to negate your own healing. It's almost like saying that you're not quite willing or ready to take it. I wanted to touch on the issue of, uh, of initiation itself, uh, given the fact that uh, on the one hand, uh, it looks like there's no initiation in the modern world. But on the, on the other hand, it looks like there is one which is recklessly done, uh, individually 
uh, an, in an isolated fashion. Because if crisis per se, if, uh, if the tra trauma, maybe it's the wrong word, uh, pain and, and, uh, uh, and stress are the elements of initiation, given the fact that it is readily available in, in this culture, uh, <laughs> Uh, there is there is room to say that yeah there is initiation, uh, and yet when we talk about organizing trouble, uh, bringing trouble into a sacred context, then we raise the issue of safety, uh, how safe it is, and this is where the the, the basic contradiction comes from. Um, the two initiations that I've experienced in my village had nothing safe about them really. And this is something I did complain about uh, uh, quite a bit because uh, on the one hand, elders were not available to answer questions. Uh, they don't explain ahead of time what's going to happen and what kind of mindset I need to have. Uh, they always say, don't worry, it's going to be fast. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I should say that, it, it, I mean, it doesn't help to have a, a modern education entering into this kind of ritual uh, because uh, part of my education uh, predicate me to wanting and liking of vast explanatory presentation uh, before uh, before entering so that you know knowing what I'm doing I can enter it with dignity and uh, elegance with style and justify the underground that I know the philosophy and the metaphysics uh, surrounding the particular episode I'm going to be a, a principal player in, you know. But the, the, the silence is really, really uh, demeaning. Um, like so far, I still don't understand why for 30 days every morning uh, they would tell me, that, you know, young elder initiate come over to take your bath. And I'm thinking about baths the way you're thinking about it. Except that uh, I'm taken to a, a big jar full of ashes. And those ashes are poured on me. I mean, I can barely breathe. And by the time they're done, I look like a ghost. And they will let me go, almost saying, like, enjoy. Um, <laughs> It wouldn't, it wouldn't be too bad if, if you know, the temperature outside were, were not well over 100. And uh, you know, the sweat wets the, the, the ashes that turn into some kind of scale on the body. And they're, they're very scratchy. And come noon, I'm sweating. And they ask me to come for another bath. And so after several weeks, a totally different feeling starts to occur. For some reason... Uh, it's as if my body readjusted to that, to that uh, habit. Not that I was looking forward to it. No, uh, I wasn't looking forward to any bath. And uh, I was starting to get irritated at, at the idea that they call it a bath. Uh, and all I was interested in is, uh, you know, when am I going to have a real bath? I mean, the, the one with water, you know. Uh, but this kind of initiation, you know, come with no visitation to the shower room. And I was getting worried about my, the state of my health. It was probably more my mental health than my physical health. Uh, meanwhile, the, the uh, presentation in the night of things that you will relate to as magical, uh, that take sleep away, 
and push the body into such an exhaustion that it stops feeling like exhaustion. It becomes something else. All of that topped with a general silence. Uh, I would say that, uh, that that's not helping. Uh, but that's what initiation really calls attention to. That's what it's about. And it feels to me that uh, if well organized, I hate to say it, but if the experience of stress and pain and uh, <laughs> challenges of this nature can be catalogued, brought together into one single space uh, with ancestors involved, I wonder what would the result be in this kind of culture. And I've been increasingly uh, interested and concerned about uh, uh, the possibility of initiation, uh, the one that involves a series of radical ritual uh, for people in the modern world who are waking up to the call of the ancestors to take on and to, uh, to become the keepers of all wisdom. I don't know what that would mean, but I know that there is a, uh, a psychical self-depreciation directly resulting from the absence of initiation in the modern world to the point where uh, what it translates into is, a, is an ongoing sense of adolescence, uh, the kind of negative youthfulness uh, that is waiting for something drastic to happen in order to feel like one is grounded on the earth. It would be hard for me to, to say what was the result of all these uh, experiences that I've had. Uh, I, I can't put it in words because uh, they belong to a different kind of discourse, a different kind of language. But the only thing that has remained clear is the fact that uh, the experience has provided me a better understanding of what it means to walk along the path of purpose. It has provided me a better understanding about the place of trouble in the purposeful journey. We oftentimes think that, uh, you know, once you have undergone or experienced this troublesome thing, then everything else must be smooth. And that's the wrong thinking. The graduation from one trouble, at least in indigenous term, almost qualifies you for another trouble. Uh, it doesn't remove all the troubles away. You know, I may be coming across like I'm negative about it, but uh, there's a way in which we need to, uh, to understand the challenges of our lives in a context that is elevating because the constant pursuit of troublelessness is hopeless because trouble will always come. Now, how we take him in in such a way that we become the main player in the dance with trouble, oh. that's what constitutes the challenge. And initiation, therefore, uh, initiates that. Since to initiate is to begin something, it means that by taking on the, uh, the risk of jumping off the cliff, then you've made future jump off an almost fun thing to do to the point where you need to become suspicious when your life is trouble-free. Oh, well, you know, of course, the conventional world, world would not accept that. Um, and yet, uh, it is almost like a denial to find oneself covered with trouble every day and being constantly, subliminally bombarded with possibility of living a trouble-free life. You know, 
And if it is possible to, uh, to, to upgrade the mind thinking to that place where you can see trouble as living thinking entities uh, that can be made happy uh, or scared, then the resulting effect of that is that you become the organizer of the kind of trouble that wants to play with you. And what happened is that the bigger the trouble, the more you must make yourself even bigger than the trouble. Because eventually that trouble becomes scared of you. Oh, it becomes afraid of you. It doesn't go away perhaps, but it stays at bay. And so with this initiation idea, oh, we must therefore think of you know, the water ritual that uh, I'm suggesting that we do later on this week as an opportunity to begin something like that. Uh, because uh, the first step, therefore, toward uh, a purposeful life, it begins with uh, the knowing that there are certain things, certain trouble that have found their way into ourselves in a way that they feel like they have welded themselves in. And in doing that, that they have the power to regulate uh, our day-to-day -day life. And the idea of disconnecting them from our constitution using the agency of water uh, certainly is a good idea. Uh, and helping each other do that, uh, not waiting for some kind of expert uh, to take you in there, but helping each other do that is actually beginning the kind of thing which later on future generation might take as uh, a blueprint to create something more consistent uh, for others. And this is why on the subject of initiation, I'm just, I just want to say that uh, at this juncture, we are it. In other words, <laughs> if, if initiation has to be compounded into a, 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 a regular discipline, the inventors of that will have to be you. And of course, it has, uh, uh, you will wonder, how can, how, how can an, in, an initiated person become a pioneer in the design and implementation of initiation? Well, uh, the truth about it is that if we're waiting for some kind of initiated state to do that, it will never happen. It will not take place in our lifetime. And it seemed to me that um, the first thing to do here is really to acknowledge that by virtue of having lived in this world that long, you have survived many, many initiations. And if it is possible to line them up, then you will realize that there's some kind of consistency in them. And by honoring them that way, it makes it possible to, uh, uh, to then use that as the basis for thinking about how to help others in a more uh, concerted way. And so uh, the more, therefore, we involve ourselves with, uh, with these uh, radical sacred events, uh, the more we're being asked to become uh, the kind of givers that are less interested in credit-taking in the immediate. Because in the context in which uh, we live, it is important that those of us who are awake envisage their giving to the world in a way that uh, they don't expect to be honored for it. And this is very difficult because we live in a world in which, uh, you know, if you've done something, you need to be credited for it. Uh, uh, as if somehow it's a transaction that is fair. Uh, and the point of it is that uh, 
the little thing that we do, wherever we do it, however anonymously, uh, to the degree that it contributes to some form of healing, sometimes so far away, so distant, that we cannot even trace our good deed to that positive result. It is important that uh, we put the notion of uh, reward away for now, because uh, this is the kind of thing that delays the delivery of our capacity to heal, to heal others.